Father, as we come to the text of your word again tonight, we ask that you hold quiet our hearts so that we could focus upon you and your footprints through history, that we may learn of your character, of your faithfulness, and learn also about ourselves and your plan for us in Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. I uh, just wanted to remind you, this is, we're getting, restarting the class after a week off. Um, if you uh, are new, uh, my wife is the one that hands out the um, handouts each, each week. And I should have gotten, there she is right there. Uh, you should have gotten one tonight for next time. Uh, if you didn't, um, raise your hand. Anybody not get a handout tonight for, for next time? Okay. Usually after she finishes handing out earlier, they'll be in a chair back there when you come in. Um, we have uh, all, all kinds of people that come to our class, and tonight I was just going to introduce two special guests here uh, that have been here for, faithfully for a year or so, year or two. And uh, I just want to introduce them because... They drive all the way from Baltimore City here on Thursday nights to come, come to class and back. And both are teachers in the Baltimore City school system. And both have survived <laughs> for decades. Uh, Mary Robinson, uh, the lady, has taught over 30 years in the Baltimore City school system. And um, Moses has taught there, Moses Wilson has taught there almost as long. So... Okay. Okay, so they're both 30-year veterans. Um, so when you think you have it tough in wherever you are, um, these people really are in the firing lines down there in the city. So uh, you might remember them in prayer um, because they could use it. Okay, um, tonight, let's uh, go to the worksheet that I passed out with the notes last time. I want to kind of use this as a review and get us back in the groove. Uh, these are our problem. This is just kind of like a little problem set. Um, the first one is to match the doctrines with the events. Again, I emphasize in this uh, Thursday night series, we're trying to train you. Train you to think in terms of actual history as well as the content of Scripture. If you don't do this, you wind up thinking of what you read in the Bible as some sort of religious story. And if you keep thinking in terms of the Bible as just a religious story, what's going to happen is you isolate it from real world. It just happens. And that's why we compartmentalize the Bible. We have the little religious story over here, and the rest of life is over there. And the two never meet. Well, that's not the way God spoke into history. He spoke into history. If you think about it, and think about the Bible versus other religions of the world, just think how much of the Bible that you hold in your lap contains history. And how little of it is really didactic. That is, like the New Testament epistles and so forth. That's a very small portion of the Bible. Now, we know that a lot better than the rest of the Bible because most preachers preach it. A lot of preachers do it because they too lazy to study history, but we won't go into professional secrets. Um, the point is, though, that the Bible weighted by volume 
is very history-centered. And we need to understand why it's that way. Why does the Bible tell stories that are firmly rooted into history? Example, in the New Testament, Luke did not have to say, as he does, that in the thus and such reign of Tiberius, such and such happened. Why did Luke deliberately lock in what he was talking about to the calendar? Why does John the Apostle, as he writes the Gospel of John, say that on the evening of Passover, Jesus did this? Why does he lock it into a day and a season? Because God is saying that he is real and he works in history all around us. Why does Noah say that the sign of his covenant is the rainbow that everybody can still observe? Because... He wants us to understand that God of the Scripture is the Lord of history. And what this does, it, it, it relaxes you and relaxes us because we know who's in finally, final charge. When the chaos gets high level, the only calming influence you have is to put your roots somewhere. And the only root we've got is God himself. And... This is so tremendously important because it applies literally in every area of life. Uh, the non-Christian at this point has nothing, absolutely nothing, analogous to the God of Scripture. There is no root in chaos other than illusions, other than idolatrous illusions. There is no other root. So you have a choice of building your life on the God of Scripture and His sovereign control and omnipotence, or in some sort of a manufactured illusion. And when you build your life on manufactured illusions, uh, finally, uh, you pay consequences for that. So, again, looking at the worksheet, we're trying to match the events with the doctrines. And uh, we can go through this very quickly. Uh, creation, um, what does that show? One of the things it shows the nature of the Creator so that teaches us about who God is. And if you think about it, the great creeds of the church all begin with what? What statement in the great creeds of the church? I believe in God the Father who? Who? Created the heavens and the earth. Now, every, all the creeds of history do that except the modern creed. You look in our hymn book at the end and you'll see the modern creed wipes the whole thing out and puts Jesus first. Evidently, the modern people know more about the progress of theology than the uh, older people did, or even the writers of Scripture. Because in the Bible, it's the God who made heavens and earth that comes first, not Jesus. Okay, so the creation tells us about God. What does the fall tell us about? What do you look and see there? Suffering and evil, okay? The flood. The flood... Is, uh, reveals an act of God. It was a judgment, but he also saved people. And there is a primary picture of what judgment and salvation look like. And you'll notice that it's, it frees you from thinking of salvation purely in psychological terms of what's going on inside. I, I dare say that in the judgment salvation of the flood, a lot was going on outside. So when God works, he works in toto. The New World Covenant of Noah, what, is this, what did that establish? That basically is the foundation of civilization as we know it. 
civilization as we know it, with a divine institution of government added, is in the New World Covenant. So we have man, divine institutions, which also, by the way, come out of the creation. Because when God created Adam, he created marriage and so forth. Okay, the Exodus. The Exodus was what? Skipping here, call of Abraham a minute. The Exodus was a picture of God's acts in history. He judged and he saved. Same thing. So therefore, that again is the doctrine of the judgment salvation. So you can match those two. And you want to look at these pictures. And so when you read these narratives, you're, you're seeing depicted in the story the doctrine, the truth. All right, the call of Abraham. What does that show over there? God chose Abraham out of all the races and, and, and languages and everything else to do a program with him. So therefore, if he chose him, what do we have? The doctrine of election. Okay. Um, we have the Exodus, uh, the, the uh, Mount Sinai. God speaks from Mount Sinai and he reveals his law. So here we have probably well over a million or so people out in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula. And if uh, I showed you, remember uh, last year, my slides where I had gone to the Jebel Musa, which most people think is the Mount Sinai, and if you stand with your back to Jebel Musa and you photograph out uh, to the west, you see that there's a big amphitheater valley there. And you can, just in your mind's eye, when the people heard God speak, and he literally put the fear of God in them, uh, you can see how it happened because he was speaking and the voice of the God's word must have just ricocheted off these big cliffs for miles. And these, you, if you had been there... And this is crucial concept, by the way, today. This is crucial concept because liberal theology, modern theology today, cannot accept revelation. They do not believe there was ever anything as called public revelation. That is, by public revelation, we mean this. We mean that millions of people gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard God speak, such that if they had a tape recorder, they could have taped it in Hebrew. That's what we mean by revelation. Now, what the modern theologian does and what your liberal clergy do, when they talk about revelation, they're not talking about that. They're using the word, but they're not the meaning. What they mean is that Moses thought these things up under perhaps the inspiration of God. It was all just Moses thought about it, and the people received it as Moses' word. That's not what the narrative says. The narrative says God publicly spoke so you could tape record him speaking in Hebrew language. Okay, so Mount Sinai then is connected with what? What? Revelation. It's also connected with what else? Because he wrote. Inspiration of Scripture. It's the beginning of the Scripture and the beginning of the canon, the set of books. So, Scripture is rooted in that event. That event is a test case to publicly show the process God uses to reveal himself. Finally, the conquest and settlement that we ended last year, not finishing the section we're doing this year, because this lesson that we're working on, we should have finished last year. Conquest and settlement. That was the issue of holy war. It is a very controversial part of the Bible because in that par part of the Bible you have cruelty and you have all kinds of things happening there. 
And we, we said last time, it's critical to get this because people get apologetic and sometimes if you get, a, you get yourself maybe a little embarrassed about the violence in Scripture here, you, you, it's there. You can't deny there's violence in the Scripture. There's even cruelty in the Scripture. As we said last, uh, last year, remember, if you judge what happened in the conquest and settlement by modern rules, it was un, a cruel and unusual punishment. No question about it. So how then do we resolve this problem? Well, we said, if we go back to this diagram about good and evil, this is why these ideas will go over again and again and again. The nature of God, the nature of evil, the fall. And you'll see us come back to this a dozen times, a times a dozen times, over and over and over, repeat, 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 because that's how you learn. So, we're going to repeat ourselves here tonight because in reviewing this section of the Bible, we want to get the big picture. If we are a non-Christian, and if we deny Scripture, or we treat its authority in a cavalier fashion, dismiss it, we are left with this picture. There is no question about it. The only alternative you have to believing the Bible and accepting the biblical story is to accept this as an option. I mean, this is the only other alternative you got. This option says that good and evil, sorrow, sickness, death, pain, goodness and evil together exist forever. They're never separated. This is why in the Orient, your Oriental religions early on had to cope with this problem. If good and evil are always there, and if we say, for example, believe in reincarnation and the cycles and this, all that, the problem is, you know, you never escape this. And that's why the ultimate escape in Oriental religion is into the nirvana, where you go into a sort of spiritual suicide of non-existence. And they call that salvation. Well, they have to. They have to because that's the only way you can get rid of this. If you're conscious, if you're conscious, you are conscious of good and evil. So what's the solution to get separated from evil? Become unconscious. Okay? So, before we laugh at the Bible, the burden is on the other side who don't believe the Bible. Now let's look at the Bible. The Bible says that God created and that later on there was a fall. Whether you, This is the distance between creation of Satan and the fall of Satan or the creation of Adam and the fall of Adam. We're not concerned with which. We're just concerned with the fact that God creates and there's a fall and there's a space between them in time so that we now know that the universe and every creature in it could have existed in a non-evil environment. Evil is not a necessity for existence. On a non-Christian basis, evil is a necessity of existence. There is no existence conceivable without death. Think about the, our evolutionary process. Evolution believes in creation through death and struggle. The Bible doesn't. The Bible says God speaks and His creative word was free from death. There was no death. There was no agony. There was no pain in the creation process. It was instantaneous and joyful. The angels sang at creation. That's the biblical story. 
So the two are different. And so we have this space. Then we have a period of history from the fall to this point in time when good and evil coexist just like down here. But the difference is that this time period is bracketed. It is not bracketed on any non-Christian basis. That is absolutely unique to the Bible. No one else ever in the history of the world has a boundary on evil. No one. Only in the Bible do we have a fall and a termination. That is unique. And so that structure sets up the scene for why we have cruelty and violence when God judges. Because what God is going to do is He is not going to let things stay this way. He is going to intrude in history and separate good from evil. And that's His surgery. And it's violent surgery. And that's the basis for sanctification in the Christian life. That's the basis for the gospel. Everything associated with the gospel, salvation, sanctification, the struggles of the Christian life, and ultimately the resurrection from the dead, have to do with that process, separating good from evil. It's God's way of dealing with a problem finally and totally and comprehensively. And it is painful. But keep in mind, if we say, well, how come God allows this? Because when God created, the evil wasn't there. Evil is not a product of his creation. Evil is a product of us. Evil is an ecological disturbance on a cosmic scale of rebellion. Okay, so when we come then to conquest and settlement and we see cruelty, the reason we see cruelty and holy war in the Bible is because... The holy wars are a foretaste of the ultimate judgment God will reign upon the earth. Israel was called to execute judgment against a subset of the human race called Canaanites. These people God had allowed for 300 years to apostatize ever more deeply. They became rooted in evil tremendously and powerfully to the point they became demonically controlled. They were a terminal population, a terminal generation. And God allowed them to develop over three or four hundred years so that when Israel came into the land, they would eliminate them. And by eliminate them, we have to admit, they were to kill men, women, children, dogs, cats, and everything else, but to leave the trees, the vineyards, and the farmlands alone. And it's a, it's a very... Um, powerful thing in the scriptures. And when we see that, instead of backing off from it, instead of apologizing for it, we can't any more apologize for that than we can the six days of creation. They are there in the scriptures. If we're going to be intellectually honest, we accept that, move on, and see why. God has a reason why he sets things up this way. So, the conquest and settlement is a picture of sanctification. Sanctification isn't just feeling good. It's not a question of mental self-improvement. It has to do with a cosmic theme here. There's big stakes going on, not just your personal private Christian life. There's a universal cosmic thing that's going on in your life, and you're connected and plugged into that through Jesus Christ and his work. All right, on the worksheet, we came to some key ideas. And I stress these because these come up again and again, and they're going to come up in the lesson tonight. So again, this is a review. So we're going to review it just for a moment. Let's take the first idea, the idea of covenant. 
What's the nearest thing to a covenant in everyday business world? Contract. Okay, we all know what contracts are. How many here would buy a house or a car or any other large purchase without a contract? Now, why don't you? Think about it. Why do you want a contract when you buy a house or a car or some large purchase? Because you want some legal leverage if something goes wrong. You want some guarantees. A contract is a setup to monitor the behavior of the parties to that contract. If you agree to buy a house or you agree to sell a house, the seller and the buyer agree to certain behavior. The seller's going to get out of the house at such and such a date. He's going to turn over such and such money. The buyer has these rights, etc., etc., etc. The contract anchors and controls and acts as a yardstick on human behavior and conduct. Now, isn't it striking? Here's another uniqueness of Scripture. Just as that's unique, there's another uniqueness. Do you realize there is not another religion on the planet in which God made a contract? You cannot find that in any other religion outside of the Bible. There is no religion on earth that binds their God to a written contract except the Scriptures. Now, let's look at it from God's point of view. Why do you suppose, since he initiated contract, by the way, what was the first contract mentioned in the scriptures? We did it the first year, in the New World Contract in Noah's day. We mentioned last year the second contract mentioned in the scriptures, the contract with Abraham. Third contract was given in Mount Sinai with the nation Israel. Uh, there was another contract we skipped uh, last time we did that as part of that contract with Israel called the Palestinian Covenant, and we skipped it because we can't cover everything, but it's there. So these are contracts. Now, what do we call the Bible? It's the Old and New Testament. Is a testament a contract? Absolutely. So ironically, the very name of the book we hold in our laps testifies to its covenantal structure. Now, why do we have the covenantal structure? Why did God pick this? Because remember, he's the one that initiated it, not man. It was he who said, I will make a covenant with you, Noah. And that was the beginning of the covenants. So let's look at this. God, at a point in time, agrees that he will do certain things. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And this is also the Palestinian covenant. It's the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. Don't worry if these are new to you. The Abrahamic covenant had three provisions. Anybody remember what those were? I will promise you an everlasting seed. So there would be a miraculous descent from Abraham throughout history. Second, I will give you a land. And the third thing, more or less as a result, you will be for all the world a worldwide blessing. Each of these three provisions is amplified. The land promise is amplified in the Palestinian covenant, which we get into. We skip that, but basically the Palestinian covenant says that in spite of what Israel does, she will wind up in the land. She will repent in the future and be led back to the lands in the back part of Deuteronomy. The seed promise, we're going to study this, this uh, fall, and that has to do with the Davidic covenant. The blessing upon all the nations has to do with a new covenant. 
So all three provisions of the Abrahamic covenant are amplified in these three other covenants that God makes. Now, so what? Why does God operate this way? Why do we have in the Bible, God says, I will do this, 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 this. And then we have a period of time where this period of time, T, can be centuries, it could be a lifetime, uh, it could be millennia. What's happening over that time interval? If you have a covenant at the beginning of the time interval, what's the time interval showing? Behavior. And that's the power of seeing this in the scriptures. Look what it does for you. Think about this for a minute. Just with this one idea, look what you've captured. With this one idea that God makes a covenant at this point in time and He dares men to see His faithfulness. He promises He will do certain things in history that are beyond any human comprehension, that are beyond human power, beyond human planning. And He pulls them off. He pulls off the stunt of growing a people called the nation Israel. He pulls off the stunt of getting them into the land. He pulls off the everlasting seed promise in a way that blows everybody's mind, totally in a surprising fashion. He pulls off the idea that all nations can be saved through Jesus Christ. All of these are not random acts. They are all contained in the covenantal controls on God's behavior. So look at the condensation here. How much God condescends to do, to show His character to us in the Bible. Think of this. All those stories, when you open the Bible and you see so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so begat so-and-so, oh, gee, what's this in here? Or you get into Reuben, goes into the land from this city to this city to this city to this city. Wow, deeply spiritual passage. Why are these passages like that in the Bible? You know what they are? They're survey logs. Now, why do you care what Reuben went into? What is that fulfilling? What did he promise to do? Bring him into the land. What is he recording? They went into the land and I gave them from this city to this city to this city. Reading some of those passages, he measures it for you. Why does he, uh, why does he have the stories of the birth and the death of the kings? And all the adventurous stories like the wicked queen Athaliah who co comes in and she almost eradicates uh, Jezebel, almost eradicates the lineage of the dynasties. Why? It builds suspense. At one point, the entire monarchy depends on a six-year-old boy and surviving because priests hide him in a back room in the temple. Because the guards, the police, and the soldiers are out to kill him. They want the dynasty ended. But God said the dynasty will remain forever. And so a six-year-old boy at one point is hidden away by the priests. And he grows up and he reigns on the throne of Israel. And the lineage continues. Why are these stories here? To show behavior. And why do we want to show behavior? What's the issue behind even that? The issue here is to show whose behavior? God's behavior. And that gives us assurance of our faith. That's how our faith... Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When I see my God make those footprints in the course of historical time, it becomes easier and easier for me to trust Him with the details of my life. 
If you go from the larger to the smaller, it's better than going from the smaller to the larger. Reverse the process. Get the big picture from the scriptures and then come down to the little deals in your life. Okay, so that's the key idea of the covenant. Why the covenant form of God's revelation? Because it reveals his faithfulness. When he says he is going to do something, as Abraham said, he is faithful to do that which he has promised. What are the covenants we learned? We just reviewed them. What implications follow about the truthfulness of the Bible regarding historical events? Anyone? What is the automatic implication? If the Bible is a covenant... And to prove behavior, you need legal evidence such that if God, as it were, were brought to trial, which his behavior is, because who is it that's always accusing God? Satan. And there is a cosmic trial going on, and it will go on until the end times when the case will be closed. Is God or is God not guilty of following his word and being a totally just God? All mouths will be stopped because he will demonstrate his total, complete, 100% faithfulness over against the most ingenious, the most ingenious prosecuting attorney that ever created. The word Satan means prosecuting attorney. Satan has tried to prosecute God and cause him to admit that he's violated his word at some point, either here, there, or somewhere else. Read it in the book of Job, chapter 1, how he's picking away and picking away and picking away at God's character. Always picking away at God's character. Always God's fault. Never my fault. God's fault. God made me this way. Blah, blah, blah. So, this is always the satanic theme. So, what then is the implication regarding the events of the Scriptures? When we read that Reuben went into a land and the cities were here, here, here by 1,002 stadia, why do we care about those details? What happens if those details are wrong? What happens if we have historical errors in the Scripture? What happens in this cosmic trial? We've got contaminated evidence. The evidence is no good. What does any lawyer worth his salt do in court to a witness? He tests them. What is he trying to do? To get the witness to trip because if he can get the witness to say, well, gee, maybe I was wrong there, he can say, ah, we don't have an infallible witness, so if he was wrong there, he might be wrong here, where my client's claim is at stake, you see. So you have to have infallible evidence to make it work. That's why we fundamentalists believe in the infallibility of Scripture. It's not because we fell on our head in a storefront someplace. This stuff is built into the very structure of Scripture. We didn't make this up. Every great church father has believed in, in, in inerrancy. Augustine, John Wesley, Martin Luther, John Calvin, you name it. You read what they said, they all believed in biblical inerrancy. The only fools that don't believe in it are the people who live in the 20th century who go around claiming they're Christians. But they don't believe the Bible. So... The covenant idea is structurally necessary. The other thing that we want to emphasize again and again is man is made in God's image. And we wanted to, we, we said, we made a big deal out of this the first year. Last year we kind of uh, took some shots at it. But <clears throat> this is a, a key because it shows the unique nature of man. 
We said that God has certain characteristics. He is sovereign. He's righteous. He's just. He's loving. We call those His holiness. Uh, and this is just one breakdown of the attributes. This, there's a million, myriad more. I think, Mike, you have the book, uh, Char- oh, what's his name? The, the, the Puritan? Hmm? No, 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 the Puritan writer there that wrote that big book on the attributes of God. Charnon, yeah. It's a two-volume set, isn't it? Yeah, so if you really have a, a time when you have, suffer from insomnia or something, um, there's a great two-volume set I could recommend. Not that the material is dull, it's just that it's pretty thick and it's tiring to read. But he goes through all the attributes of God. And then also we know that God is omniscient. Then God is omnipresent. He's uh, everywhere. He's uh, always, he's eternal. And he's immutable. So he's all-powerful. He's everywhere. He's eternal. So in space and time. These are the attributes of God. This is the nature of our God. Now, the Bible says that man is made in God's image. Now, what does that mean? Man made in God's image. Well, it means... For one thing, that the creature over here, there is one creature called man who shares analogs to these attributes. So the the analogy in our life to God's sovereignty is human choice. When we exercise our chooser, we are exercising a faculty that is our analogy to his sovereignty. It's not identical to it, not identical. It's analogous to it. It's the finite version of it. When we have that sense of conscience in our life, that is the finite analog to His holiness. If when we experience love in a human fashion, it's only a finite replica of His love. See, His love differs from our love in at least one major aspect. God is free to love totally because he's never afraid of anything. He's totally unthreatened. And that frees him to love because nobody can mess with him. But in our case, we're vulnerable. So when we go to love, it has certain boundaries on it. We only go so far because it gets to a point and we're concerned about our security. So human love has certain limits to it. God's love doesn't. And we have, God is omniscient, he knows all things, and we have some things, what we call human knowledge. So, we have this analogy. We, we are made analogously to God. Now, if we weren't, we couldn't talk, couldn't carry on a conversation, couldn't be saved, couldn't fall. I mean, you know, the gospel really doesn't concern our cats and hamsters. It concerns that creature which is made in God's image, man. Okay, so this is the connection between God and man. This is why we can have a personal relationship with him. Okay, let's go to one of the problems in the worksheet. We said on the back, there's three problems there. Uh, We can discuss, we always have 15, 20-minute discussion after class if you're interested in one. Um, Anybody got preferences? Uh, Which three you'd like to do? Which of the three? Anybody? Okay, well, let's pick number two. It's a common problem. It's, you'll run into this in your own family, maybe in your own life. The same kind of principle, at least. Your month-old baby dies from sudden infant death syndrome. This is the precipitating incident. You experience passionate anger toward God, aversion to even reading the Bible, 
and withdraw from other believers who try to quote verses to you. What biblical doctrines centrally apply and what pathway do you use to settle the matter between him and you based upon these doctrines? This is a battle that goes on in your head when these kinds of shocks come into the system. And we, you've all lived through some degree of this kind of thing. And if you haven't, get prepared because it's going to happen to you. So you might as well learn how to respond to these sorts of shocking things that can happen in your life and not fall apart and act like some non-Christian would. So we want to understand how do we respond to these kinds of things? Well, we go back and we say to ourselves, wait a minute here, what do I know about the nature of God? He's in charge of this whole thing. So I go back and I start thinking this thing through. Not all at once, but the first thing you want to remember about all this is the best thing Satan can do to you is to perform a spiritual frontal lobotomy. Because if he can get you not thinking, if he can get you emoting to the point where your emotions are overriding every thought in your head, he's got you knocked. You're a disaster case. You're a casualty. Because he's won the battle. We work. God speaks. You know, you have to think. When somebody speaks to you, there is the emotional side of the word, but there's content to the word. Now, he's spoken to us, and he's gone in great depths to deal with this whole issue of suffering and sorrow and heartache and so on. So we have to say to ourselves, all right, let's think through this. The baby dies. Innocent little child, he dies. Nothing the doctors do can help him. I'm sitting here and I watch, you know, Joe Snodgrass's machine gun eight people in Baltimore and he's doing fine. But my little baby boy is dead. Is that the way God runs the universe? Thank you, God. All right, how we handle that? Let's think this through. The baby's dying. Soon I, we're all going to die. Even Joe Snodgrass machine guns eight people, he's going to die too. What's this death deal? Aren't we dealing with another instance of death? Now, what does that lead to? Let's just think through the framework. Death. Death. What is the biblical explanation for physical death? There's a lot of stuff devoted to explaining why this comes about and what's going to happen. Death started because of God or because of man? Was Adam and Eve created to die? You don't read that in the text. Of course, those people believe it's a myth, say, oh yeah, well, it couldn't happen that way. Well, the moment you say it's a myth and couldn't happen that way, you just lost your whole solution to the baby dying of sudden death syndrome. So, you know, take your pick which way you want to go. So if the scriptures say that originally there was no death, and this baby's dying on me, what changed? What caused the change? What's implicated in the change? Oh, gee, human responsibility. We're blaming God. Excuse me? What did God say to Adam and Eve before they died? What was the warning? In the day that you what? What's going to happen? Ah. Eve, didn't, Eve doubted him. He wanted to test the seed. Jesus, he really mean that? 
Yeah, babes, he did. Now you die. Great experiment, she ran. So we have death introduced. Now there's a second way of handling this. Once you start to find this, that can still be resentment and anger, okay? Because you can now think this thought. All right, God allowed death to start. He allowed the sickness to start. But doggone it, he doesn't have to wade through it. And he doesn't experience the pain like I do. Ah. Anybody got a little antidote to that toxin? What's the great biblical truth you can bring in every time you hear the thought, Oh, God isn't touched by this. He never has to walk around in this. He never experienced a temptation like that. What biblical truth answers that? The incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Again, ask yourself, got another solution in any other religion? Did Allah incarnate himself? How many Eastern gods incarnated themselves and walked around? Only the God of the Bible, incarnate in Jesus Christ, not only was tempted in all points as we are, but what else did he experience that we don't? He experienced the wrath of God for sin for three hours on a cross. Any human pain can't come close to what he suffered at that point in time. Is God touched by the feeling of our infirmities? What does Hebrews tell us? Oh, yes, he is. Because our God became man. Did he walk around in the muck? Yes, he did. Only the biblical God gets dirt under his fingernails. Allah doesn't. He stays up in heaven. Buddha doesn't. Nobody's dying for us. It's only Jesus Christ that dies for us. So now we have this brat that we've got a handle on this. And this has to be worked through. My point in dealing with the problem of, of the second problem is what biblical doctrines centrally apply? The whole issue of the source and origin and responsibility for death. When you look at a baby dying of sudden death in, uh, syndrome or something like that, suffering perhaps, uh, agonizing in his breath and so on, suffocating, that is another illustration. In the day that you eat thereof, O oh man, you will die. Obey me and you won't die. So we chose the way. So every time we see sickness, sorrow, and heartache, just ask yourself who's responsible. And never mind this business, God let it happen. And the second thing to remember is, once it is in existence, who pursues us into the sewer, goes after us and pulls us back out and is pierced to the heart by the pain of death. You see? You see, this is the meat of Scripture. We don't need a book that thick on techniques to avoid mental depression. All we have to do is listen to the God of the Scripture. Okay, let's go now to... Um, if we want to discuss any of these further, we'll have to after class. I want to quickly go through the four pages that we had handed out because I want to get into the kingship issue 
And if you will turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis 14. <clears throat> what we're going to do now <clears throat> is build, build up for understanding this whole David thing. David, of course, became the king of Israel. And 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is a narrative of the adventures of getting there. So, we need to understand what is, is, what is the goal of David, this, this, or, da, or God's work in his life. David is going to become the king. In particular, he is called, by the Hebrew word masak, to anoint, he is called the anointed king from which we get the Christ. So, we'll put this in parenthesis. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title of the fact that he was anointed. David into this position. So everything in all the stories leads up to this. And it leads to a greater thing because David is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what the story is now in the history we're about to study. And we want to start with understanding what a king looks like. The first king that uh, is not evil, Nimrod is said to be the first king, but the first king that we really get a glimpse of in scriptures is the king that uh, Abraham came to. And we want to look at that king because we want to see that that king had certain things that he did. Verse 17 of Genesis chapter 14. After his return from the, uh, from the defeat, remember Abraham had his armies out and he, he chased down the, the kidnappers of his, of his relatives, uh, chased after the kings, and verse 18, he was met by this strange person. Now look carefully at verse 18. We covered this uh, uh, last year, but we'll review a little bit. Melchizedek, king of Salem, which we think is Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High. Now, the thing that you want to notice is that the original idea of king is that he is both king and priest. Together, the same man holds two, those two offices. He mixes church and state, as it were. So, that's one of the features. And we're going to trace that, those two offices through the Samuel narratives to find out why David does what he does. We're going to look at Saul. Saul got screwed up in these two offices. And part of Saul's problem was he couldn't keep them separate. And yet, why, if God wants it together, why does he keep them separate? So there's a mystery that goes on through these stories. So, Melchizedek, is, he is a monotheist. Verse 20... He believes in God Most High. He is saved. He is a man who, in, as a Gentile, was saved before Jesus Christ. He was saved because he believed that God Most High would save him by some means, apparently by blood, because of the bread and wine and so on. So, Melchizedek is a type of the kings that were to be in the sons and daughters of Noah. Remember, Noah is the author of our civilization. No matter what race you are, no matter what language you speak, no matter who's your cousin, your genes came off the same boat. 
all of us came off the same boat. There was one family that led to civilization, if we believe the scriptures. It wasn't some monkey that gave up his banana. It was a family, civilized, intelligent, God-fearing people who got off the boat and proceeded to populate the earth. Interesting, as we said last time, presumably much of the racial diversity brought in by the four women on the boat, because obviously if all the boys had the genes of daddy, the variation in the human race probably came from the females that married the boys. So we have a genetic selection from the antediluvian world. We have them in one family. And that family was to establish civilization on this planet. We said last, last time, as I showed you in the, two weeks ago, this family was geniuses. They lived eight to nine hundred years. They lived for centuries. They didn't have to write books. You wanted to know what happened to Noah? Ask Grandma. She was there. There was a short cycle in history. And these people could navigate. They had developed a clock because they could measure longitude. They mapped the entire world. The entire continent was all mapped out. They left their mark because the same architecture that occurs in Africa also occurs in Middle America, pyramids. They left this pyramidal design everywhere they went. They left a Semitic traces in the very structure of the human race, in the language forms. So the human race was populated by these geniuses. And they were to be ruled by these king priests. It was God's office. The king and the priest taught the word of God and he administered the sword of judgment. And this is why he's blessing Abraham. An act of justice has been done with Abraham and his army and his sword. So these men brought were, were to be God's regions on earth. Of course, rapidly civilization deteriorated. You have Nimrod and the one world government uh, thing and so on. And you get into a situation of chaos. Then you come to Israel. Last year we started how Israel came out. Israel was called out to be a counterculture to this process. If you'll now turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, we come to the end of the conquest period and we have an interesting observation. Keep in mind, Judges was written by a group of prophets after the fact and it's an analysis of history. When I was in high school in social studies class, I remember teacher always used to make a big issue about who were the first historians and I can always remember, she said, Herodotus was the first historian. And Thucydides. And you could always remember Herodotus on an exam because his name began with H and you could remember associated with the word history. Well, the teacher was giving us the usual secular idea that it was the Greeks that wrote history. Not true. Who wrote Judges? Not the Greeks. The Hebrews. And why did they write history? What do we say was the underlying idea of the structure of the Bible? Covenant structure. Why do you suppose the covenant idea made Jews history conscious? Think about the link. Why would Jews be history conscious more than any other people? Because they're checking on the behavior of whom? The God who made the promises in the covenant. That's what drove their passion to know history because history was his story. And of course, we lack that passion and that's why people, you know, their eyes glaze over when you mention anything about history because we've lost the idea of what history is all about. 
and this is why kids don't get motivated to study. Why study? If it's just a pile of marbles and you're just going to burp out eight dates from the Monday exam, that's fine. Burp it out, pass the exam, and forget it. Next, you know. So, if history is marbles, then it's not worth learning. But if history is God's story, you better know it. Because it's the way you know God, by knowing history. Okay, so the judges are doing an analysis of what went wrong in the end of that conquest and settlement period. Going back to our chart and our timeline here, our sequence of events, we are now down here at the conquest and settlement. On a, on a time scale, what's happened is this. We've gone along for a number of centuries. Here's the origin of civilization, days of Noah. We go for about four to five hundred years of the most fantastic time in human history. There's never been a time like that, never will be a time again, when we have people who lived six or seven centuries coexisting with people who lived only a century. We have the spectacle at the end of the four hundred years after the Noahic flood of grandfathers who outlived their grandsons. Never before in history have had anything like that. And then at about four or five centuries after Noah, all this entire generation died off. And this period of history back here now appears mythical to everyone who investigates it because it's just unbelievable and incredible that this thing could happen. Except for the objective fact that the continents were mapped before the Ice Age except for the objective fact that somebody who was a genius in engineering and architecture built the pyramids. And except for the fact that the human race is united by this strange Semitic core to its language wherever you go. So after this, we have the rise of Nimrod and so on. This is all going on. The, the civilization is going downhill spiritually. And we have Abraham called out in about the year 2000 B.C., we are studying the period from 2000 B.C. to 1000 B.C. And at the time of the Exodus, it's about halfway through here, say 1500 or 1400 B.C. There's the Exodus. So here we have the nation Israel. For three or four centuries, they have the conquest. And then it peters out into a disaster. The nation falls apart. And the book of Judges is an analysis of why the nation Israel fell apart. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, is a refrain on this analysis. Why did society collapse in the days of the judges? There were some godly people, but the society collapsed. It lost its structure. It went into chaos. People were taken captive by the enemy. Uh, they, they lost their wars in uh, battle. They lost in battle, and they became captives and slaves. So in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now let's turn over to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. This is the last verse of the book, and this is the sobering conclusion of an analysis of 300 years of history. The analysis of the prophets is, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Doesn't that sound familiar? Everyone has their rights. Nobody talks about the fact that you know, hey, we have to have some unity here too, you know. So, we have anarchy. Remember what we said last, uh, we said last year is that if you look at the flesh, every time that when you deal with a fallen flesh, whether it's your own or someone else's or society at large, it always oscillates between two poles. 
This is fallen human flesh. It oscillates between what we call chaos option, we'll call that licentiousness, or a very rigid, legalistic pole, which manifests in government as totalitarian regimes. This is chaos and anarchy. This would be totalitarianism on an individual level. This is license, uh, uh, licentiousness, and this would be legalism. And the flesh loves to oscillate back and forth. It can't find a resting place because if it, it, it gets crimped by rules and regulations, we don't like those. So we've got to throw them off. Well, then we throw them off, and now we're over here in chaos. And obviously, you can't tolerate chaos. After a while, that gets old. So then what happens? I've got to have a solution to chaos. So I go over here, and now I'm going to be a legalist. And while I get tired of being a legalist, well, now I'm going to go over here and try this one again. And if you'll watch it, that's exactly the story of the flesh. It's exactly the story of this nation Israel. And what had happened by 300 years after the entrance into the land, the nation had gone from a position where under God, here's God as king. God was the actual king. And the nation was under God. Instead of choosing this position, they chose this position. And so now they're going to get, they're going to, the, the pendulum is going to swing. And you can tell it in the analysis of the book of Judges that the analysts, the prophetic analysts of history are saying, we've got to solve this one. We cannot let this nation fall apart. So, we're going to bring in the monarchy. And of course, they're speaking through the power of the Holy Spirit. So now we have the debate over the rise of the monarchy. And this is quite a debate. So we want to go and look at a few other passages. The first one we want to look at is Deuteronomy 17. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, inside the Mosaic Law Code, there was a provision for a king. Even though he wasn't required, there was a provision for the king. This is a classic passage. There's so many classic passages we're going to be covering in these Thursday nights about political implications. And I don't want to get off on the politics, but I can't help but the fact that like we got into geology, astronomy, physics, biology, anthropology, and other places on Thursday night, the Bible touches every area. We're going to get into some political ideas here. Okay? Deuteronomy 17 is one major passage for political philosophy in the Scripture. A crucial passage that applies to politics. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. This was the provision for a powerful leader in the nation. Watch. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and possess and live it, you shall say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You will surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. From among your countrymen you shall set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. So verse 15 answers the appeal of verse 14. The interplay for the next five Thursday nights, or four Thursday nights, is going to be between verse 14 and 15. Verse 14 is the demand of the people. They are tired of chaos. They are tired of society falling apart. They want centralized leadership and powerful and strong leadership. But God says, you watch it. You watch it. When you get into this oscillation between chaos and totalitarianism, I am entering and I'm telling you something. You just don't pick any person to be that strong leader. You pick the one I chose. Notice how God interferes with the process. 
Verse 15 dooms democratic theory. We'll get into democracy and monarchy and aristocracy. There's good elements to these, okay? But democracy has limits. It was, God did not let the democratic thrust of verse 14 override his sovereign thrust of verse 15. He stepped in. Then it says, I will further restrict the king. He will not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, shall never return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he be greatly increased gold and silver for himself. Who violated that? Solomon. And who had a problem? Solomon. Now it shall come about that when he sets... Now look at this. This is phenomenal in verse 18 and 19. This is phenomenal political idea. Now it shall come when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he will write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the middle of Israel. You see, the human king, this human office that is about to be created in history, the monarchy of Israel through whom Jesus Christ will come, this has controlled from the very start. There were controls on this. This was not to be a monarchy like the other nations. I'm going to conclude tonight by looking at your notes on page 99. I've given you some notes about kings that the other nations have. And we want to contrast these other kings. There's two quotes I want to look at. One on page 99, one at the bottom, page 100. And we'll close the class with these. If you'll read, by the way, the handout for next week uh, deals uh, with, um, carries on further, and the rise of, of Saul and David. All right, verse, uh, on page 99, footnote 2. Here's what the political thinking was in the time of the Bible. Now, please understand that when you read the Bible, you've got to transport yourself as best you can into the mindset of the people that lived at the time the Scriptures were written. If you do, you will be richly rewarded. Here's the mindset of the people in that day and age. The ancient Near East considered kingship the very basis of civilization. Only savages could live without a king. Security, peace, justice could not prevail without a king to champion them. If ever a political institution functioned with the assent of the governed, it was the monarchy which built the pyramids with forced labor and drained the Assyrian peasantry by ceaseless wars. Whatever was significant was embedded in the life of the cosmos and it was precisely the king's function to maintain the harmony of the universe. You recall that during the Exodus, I showed you these two archaeological depictions of the authority of the king. Now, we won't have time tonight to show them, but here, well, I'll just show you quick. There are three figures the Egyptian artist has drawn. Pharaoh is the middle one. The right and the left of Pharaoh are the gods. Who's taller? See what that, that's a political tract. See what that's saying? That may look kind of flaky art to us. No more flaky, by the way, in the editorial cartoons in Baltimore Sun. We have three figures. The middle one is the Pharaoh. That is a statement of Pharaoh's power. He stands up there with the gods. 
That's what that statement is saying. That's the view of the king. That's the kind of king they were crying for now at the end of the period of the judges. Give us a king like all the other nations. One who stands with the gods. Of course, in one sense, our king does stand with the gods. The king. So you can see this has prophetic overtones. This is a typical column in an Egyptian temple. On that column in hieroglyphics is written a message. The message is the name of the Pharaoh. It proceeds from top to bottom. And on either side of the name, it looks from your perspective that there's a line, vertical line drawn there. But if you come up closer, you'll see this. Indeed, not a line. It stops here and it ends here in a little like a shepherd's crook. Same thing on the other line. It ends here with a shepherd crook pulling in. That little symbol, that line, is a picture of welfare and peace and shalom. And it's saying that it connects the earth and the heavens. There's the sun in the top. There's the earth down below. The mediator between heaven and earth is the Pharaoh. He is civilization. Such is the totalitarian power. And this is why Dr. Frankfurt says in the quote on page 99, they could get pyramids with forced labor and they could build their armies and kill people by the hundreds of thousands and they'd have volunteers tomorrow because the people realized that this king was the only salvation they had. Let's turn then to the bottom, page 100 and 102, just to give the flavor of the conflict that's going to occur now in this text as we go on. The Hebrew king normally functioned in the profane sphere, but not in the sacred sphere. He was the arbiter in disputes and leader in war. He was emphatically not the leader in the cult. He did not, as a rule, sacrifice. That was the task of the priests. He did not interpret the divine will. That was the task of the priests. Moreover, divine intentions were sometimes made known in more dramatic way when the prophets cried, Thus saith the Lord. These prophets, now get a load of this, underline it, critical sentence here on page 101. These prophets were often in open conflict with the king precisely because of the secular character of the king entitled them to censor him. The transcendentalism of Hebrew religion prevented kingship from assuming the profound significance it possessed in Egypt and Mesopotamia. What are we saying in a nutshell? God's word limits political authority. God's word stands over against political authority. That doesn't set well with the world. That's why the first Christians of the second and third centuries, many of our brothers and sisters were thrown to the lions. It wasn't because they were evil people. It wasn't because they took up arms against Rome. It was more simple than that. The Caesar could not tolerate any citizen of the Roman Empire daring to say that he believed in Krios, Yeshu the Caesar in heaven whose name is Jesus. That was considered to be the highest insult to any political authoritarian in that day and age. And that's why they threw the Christians to the lions. They could not stand allegiance on the part of people to somebody higher than they. And it pits uh, steel in your backbones. And it has down through the centuries. This is what has enabled Christians to stand up to totalitarianism everywhere it goes. This is why the church has never succumbed to totalitarian government anywhere. 
It's submerged by it for a while, but it always breaks out. There's not a ruler in history that has ever broken the church. The Chinese, one of the biggest um, kook regimes on earth today, are doing their best to eradicate the Christians. And as one Japanese pastor said, they have 76 years old who they let out of jail recently, who now holds a worship service in his house right down from the the place where the government is, and uh, he was recently interviewed by Cal Thomas, and Cal Thomas asked him, well, how is it that you, a 76-year-old, broken and ill-health Chinaman, can stand up against a regime that is going to become probably the world's greatest military power? And he said it's very simple. The authorities in China learned that when I was in jail and being tortured, the church grew faster than when I am outside of the jail. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are faithful, that you have left marks of your faithful footprints down through the corridors of time. And as we approach this exciting time in the history of Israel, when the first king shall sit upon the throne, and there's all kinds of confusion in the minds of the people as to what... Yes. That, you know, if the past is in fact true, then, then we know what the future holds. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, what Vinny's pointing out here is that you can extend the, the implications. The first implication is the covenant idea shows you that the historical details of the Scripture are not superfluous. The historical details are there because God... the whole, I mean, think of it for a minute. Um, in 300 years of history, it collapsed in one book that we call Judges. Now, do you think that the book of Judges has anywhere near the coverage of those three centuries of all the details that went on? No. Judges is a selection of a very small subset of all the details that went on those 300 years. But we have to trust that the Holy Spirit, who worked that book into existence through the prophets, saw fit to memorialize the events that he did record so that they are sufficient evidence to show God was faithful to do that which he had promised in the covenant. The covenant has future implications. What Vinny's pointing out is if God has a promise and it has not yet been fulfilled, then it has to be fulfilled, does it not? See, one of the big debates we're going to get into in, in this fall and the spring is, is the issue of the millennium and the promises to Israel and the land promise. Are they true or are they not? Does Israel, had Israel ever conquered all the land? The answer is no. Well then, if Israel hasn't conquered the land, and, and by D Judges 2, the, the Bochim incident there, where he said, well, I'm not going to drive the enemies out anymore, either God forsook the original command, that he was, his promise that he was going to bring him into the land, or he's going to do it another way. So, an unfulfilled promise inside the covenant implies future fulfillment. And this is why we have to accept literal interpretation of the covenants. You don't go to your, your real estate covenant and say, oh, well, gee, um, I'm supposed to pay the guy $40,000, but, but in the spirit of it, I, I, that's not really right. I'm going to spiritualize the interpretation. Well, you know what would happen to any contract. You'd be in to spiritualize the interpretation. But yet theologians do this all the time to the, to the covenants that are in the Scriptures. 
And that's why it's very, very care- we have to be careful. When God said that uh, out of Judah, uh, in your notes, I think it's tonight, was it in the notes? Did I cover that in the notes that I handed out last time? That the king, the godly king, was supposed to come out of one tribe, Judah. And the mystery is, well, when, why did Saul pick? What tribe is Saul in? The tribe of Benjamin. Well, wait a minute here. How can the Messianic king be coming out of Benjamin? Turns out he doesn't. So, the, 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 and then David, who is of the tribe of Judah, he succeeds Saul. And then you have to notice that my spirit will not depart from David like it did from Saul. Well, what's God doing here? Almost like he's misfiring the first king. The first king is like a square peg in a round hole. doesn't work out. God does this sometimes. Who picked Judas for a disciple? Eh? Jesus did. Would Jesus not know what he's doing? Why did Jesus go ahead and pick Judas as a disciple? He knew in his omniscience as God what was going to happen, but he went and picked him anyway. As late as the night before he was betrayed, he took the bread... And who did he give it to first? Showing his extreme grace that at that very 11th hour he was welcoming Judas to come and trust in him. So, this, you see some powerful, hard-to-understand things about our God and how he works. But the thing of it is, as you read your scriptures and you watch history, you'll see him do it again and again and it gives you confidence. And you say, well, I don't understand why God works this way, but I know enough of history to know that is how he works. Strange ways. So these are the things you want to pick up. And so all these stories, I guess I'm trying to lay a groundwork here because so many times all of us have been introduced to these stories piecemeal. We've gone to a Sunday school class and we read about David and Goliath or we read about something else and we have a story here and then we have a story here and then we have a story here and we don't put these stories together to see what the big story is all about. And that's what we want to do here. We're not going to spend time on the details. So I presume that if you will read Samuel quickly, I always emphasize pick a translation where you're relaxed in, can read fast, don't worry about details. Just read through it to get the flow. And then we'll talk about the details as, as it pertains to the big picture. Yes. Well, there's a good question. Uh, the question is, where, how do you generalize the principles that were given in a context? That promise about if my people humble themselves and call by my name and so on was given by prophets. And they were addressing Jews. And it was a covenantal thing that was going on. And by the way, you know what that promise is built on? It's the Sinaitic Covenant. 
and it's referring to uh, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. And that's the background theologically for that promise. But the way you bring those principles over to apply at large, I think, has to you, you have to bring, go back to God. And think of, um, think of when in this country we have, a, say, uh, one president, one administration succeeds another. And let's make it, uh, say, a hundred-year difference. Let's say, let's contrast the presidency of um, uh, Ulysses, uh, Abraham Lincoln with the presidency of, say, Franklin D. Roosevelt. There's some strong parallels there, but let's, let's just say that we have that 100-year gap. Let's suppose, by some sort of weird time mechanism, that um, Ulysses, I mean, um, Abraham Lincoln uh, reincarnates as, as Franklin D. Roosevelt, so we have the same guy, but he's separated. Both of them have to lay forth administration. Both of them have to have an administration of principles and laws and regulations. Now let's suppose we, we look at what happened in the 1860s. Were there rules against theft? Were there rules against rape? Were there rules against covering money? Was there rules on property? Yes. We come down to the 1960s. Was there rules against theft? Were there rules against theft? So see what I'm saying? So between these two, there were differences. Things over here weren't in this policy, and things in this policy weren't over here. But there's certain common things, just by virtue of the fact that you had that common person who was present in both cases in this illustration. Like so, God is also the creator of the Noahic civilization. He's the creator and king of Israel. He is the Lord of the church. He's the same one. So where you have what we'll call the general ethical principles, they carry over not because of the covenant structure, the particular covenant structure, but because the one who makes the covenant makes his covenants very similar. Thus, therefore, we have the Noahic covenant carrying forward the institution of government, carrying forward the institution embedded in human conscience that Paul refers to. Paul indicts the Gentile world not for violating the Mosaic covenant, the indictment against any Gentile non-Jew is given in Romans 1, and it consists of one sin after another. What right does Paul have to, to, uh, uh, to bring prosecution or pr uh, prosecute the Gentile who has not the law with all those sins that he mentions in Romans 1? Because he must be going back to the basis of the Noahic covenant, which honors conscience and the pre-Noahic conscience dispensation. So that becomes, because we're made in God's image, that becomes the same kind of holiness that is manifested over here in the Mosaic Law. Except the Mosaic Law has special features in it. It has the land promise, it has the, the temple, and it has dietary things and so forth. So there are certain things about the Mosaic Law Code. The application and transfer of biblical principles from the Mosaic Covenant over is called the sphere of wisdom. And that's why the wisdom passage of the Bible books like Proverbs um, and the Hebrew canon, Daniel is a book of wisdom, not a book of prophecy. It always blows my mind when I think of that. Why on earth is the book of Daniel written in, in the Hebrews considered that a, a wisdom book rather than a prophetic book? You know why? Consider what function did Daniel do? What, what was he living as? What function did Daniel perform in society? And how would that manifest? What would we call Daniel today? 
he functioned in what is now Iraq and Iran as one of the foreign ministers, one of the political advisors. Therefore, how is a political advisor to be wise? Daniel gave wise advice to the leaders of Iraq and Iran based on what? What God was doing in history. Not to Israel, but what God was doing in history at large. And that's how he could be a high authoritarian inside the administration of the kings of Iraq and Iran. And he did so because he knew the way history was going. See? So you can't escape God and his character and his laws. They always show up somewhere. What you do have to be careful of is, as was stated, you can't just naively say, this was given to Israel, therefore, this applies to the United States of America. Not necessarily so. Good example. Sabbath day on the sixth day. Does the economy shut down in America on the sixth day? Should it shut down on the sixth day? Is that given in the New Testament for the, for the church? Not that I know of. It was given to Israel. And it's a sign, a sign of the Sinaitic Covenant that the one who made the Sinaitic Covenant is the one who rested on the, on the seventh day, rather. Rest on the seventh day was the creator of the earth, the heavens and the earth. So there are these features, and that's always given Christians problems. And I don't profess to have the total answer. I just know that, i give you an example. I have a book uh, by a man who researched a lot of the wisdom principles of the Mosaic Law Code. It's about that thick at home. You can look up any, any legislative question in that book, and he directs you to the Mosaic Law Code and addresses that issue. So I bought an extra copy and gave it to um, Nancy Jacobs when Nancy was elected as our representative. I just got a letter back from Nancy. from the, She's in the Maryland House of Delegates, and I just got a letter back from her, and she said, thank you for giving me that book, because in this past legislative session, there numerous questions came up that I, as a Christian, had to think back through, well, what do I do with this one? And she found herself going back to this particular manual that I'd given her. So, so there are principles. And we are silly, silly not to apply those wherever we can. We just have to be careful, though, because of the church and state issue and the other things that we get into. Anybody have any other questions that you'd like to throw out? If, you, if you're thinking of a question, two other people are, but they don't want to ask. <laughs> yes, Donna. Okay. Did somebody suggest that? Yes. Okay. Because they were trying to say the covenant was one side. It was not two parties. Okay. In the Bible, some of the covenants are single-party covenants and some are two-party covenants. And that's the other thing that we're going to get into with the Davidic covenant. I got into it a little bit last, last year, if you remember. Think about the covenants. The unconditional covenants are Noah's covenant, right? Noah didn't volunteer anything, right? No obligations on Noah, really. What is the Noahic covenant really about? What God is going to do, period. That's what we call a unilateral covenant. I don't distinguish covenant and contract that way. I just say covenant is equal to contract, but there are two kinds of contracts. There's this unconditional covenant. The second one, by the way, is what? After Noah, Abrahamic covenant. 
Now, there were some conditions of response like circumcision and so on, but basically the Abrahamic covenant promised three things. And it said, maybe these are going to happen, or it said, these will happen. It said, these will happen. Now, we know in the nature of the case that they can't happen without human response, right? So when God says they're going to happen, he includes there's going to be a human response to that. That's why it's very powerful election sovereignty implications of these unilateral covenants. Because in effect, they're decreeing the way history is going to go. And yet we know as history unfolds, people willingly choose. So the third unconditional covenant was one we didn't cover, which is the Palestinian covenant, which says that Israel is going to get the land, period. Seemingly in contradiction to Judges 2, which says I'm not going to drive out the enemies from the land. And then we're going to come to the one this year, which we're going to study in some detail, is the strange Davidic covenant. The covenant that says the Davidic dynasty will reign forever in history. It will never be eradicated. The nations can come and they can go, but David will always be king. Now what does that mean? How do you have an eternal dynasty out of the genes of David? So, um, so that's, that's an unconditional covenant. It doesn't say anything about David's sons. It just says, I will give you a seed that will reign forever and ever over all the nations. So there's the Davidic covenant. The, the Sinaitic covenant is different because the Sinaitic covenant is truly conditional. It says, if you do these things, then I will bless you. And if you do not do those things, I will curse you. There's no hope in the Sinaitic covenant in the sense there is in the Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant tells you what in fact is going to happen. Sinaitic covenant only tells you it will happen if. So we say that's a conditional covenant. When you read in Samuel, watch for the following passage. I think it's in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And that's in the notes. I mentioned this in the notes handing out tonight. As you read 1 Samuel 12, Saul makes a very specific address. I mean, Samuel makes a very specific address about what went wrong with Saul. And he harps back to the, the uh, Sinaitic covenant. You'll see the language. He doesn't say, I'm going back to the law of Moses, but you'll know once you read it that where he's getting it from. And he says the whole Saul dynasty is a conditional dynasty. If Saul behaves, then we will have the monarchy saved. And if Saul disobeys and you people don't go along with me, I'll get rid of you and your king. And what's that coming from? The cursing sections of the Ninth Sinaitic Covenant. There's no assurance there. You see? There's no assurance. I mean, if God tells me, Charles, I can bless you if you do this, and I'm going to curse you if you do that, I mean, that kind of clarifies the issue for me, but that, you know, really doesn't give me stunning hope for the future because I don't know what Charles is going to do. But on the other hand, if God says that I'm going to get you, Charles, from point A to point B, and it's, I always look upon it as sort of the Marine drill sergeant talking to the recruits, you will be Marines in eight weeks. Now, is that great assurance? Yes. But any fool knows what's involved. What's going to happen? Week number one, week number two, week number three. There's a little process involved in getting there. 
Well, that's the kind of thing when God sovereignly promises. See, we have the attitude that, oh, you know, nothing's going to happen to me. Well, no, no, no. If God promises he's going to get us in shape for eternity, it means, just like the drill sergeant to the Marines, it means we're going to be hauled through the process. So, in one sense, it's not comforting. It's, it's hope because we know finally it's going to come to pass, but it's sort of like going in for surgery. You may have the greatest surgeon in the world and be 30, but it's not a thrilling thing to have somebody cut you open. And that's what the Christian life is about. God is cutting open our flesh and he's doing surgery. And it's not too nice at times for him to do that. But we can tolerate the surgery if we know the outcome is going to be okay. So that's how the sovereignty of God interplays with the human being. The sovereignty of God will never be stopped. It's just you never can detach the sovereignty of God from the means. As a professor I had once said, no matter who the, how hyper the Calvinist is, you know what he does? He chooses to eat three times a day. So, that's the point. We believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. But that belief does not eradicate the responsibility and